0: Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, click on that little heart under this video, the Super Thanks button if you really like it. That way you can throw a few pennies my way. You can also support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. You can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab at the top of the page, throw a few pennies my way there. You can go to learntrue, T R U E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Witzelbury Classroom. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. All those ways support the show financially and keep this podcast going. But you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. Those are all great ways to support the show. And I appreciate everything you do to contribute to this particular podcast. So, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it is the constitutional origins of the American War for Independence. And what do I mean by that? Well, we have all these differing theories on why the war took place and why it began in 1775. And many of them, of course, focus on the immediate things leading to the war. But one thing we miss is this constitutional part of it, this rethinking of the british constitution and the relationship between the center and the peripheral that was going into that late 18th century period it really began in the 17th century as british subjects colonists started thinking about the powers of the parliament and the powers of the king now all of this is important because the idea the concept of federalism develops during that particular time period in the british empire in fact by the time you get to 1775, the American colonists had very much decided that the structure of the British Constitution and the empire, the colonies, the center, was essentially what we recognize as federalism today. That's the entire structure of the United States Constitution. You have a center that can regulate commerce, international commerce, and commerce between states, though individuals is a whole nother question, and I think I'm going to develop that at some point. What did the founding generation think about commerce between individuals? Did the general government have the authority to go and regulate commerce between individuals from different states? That's a whole other ballgame. States is one thing. Individuals is another. But regardless, so they they had regulatory powers over commerce and, of course, the power and authority to defend the states from invasion or from an insurrection, whatever the case may be. So basically, it was two things, commerce and defense. This is how Roger Sherman explained it in the Philadelphia Convention. It's how everyone explained it when the Constitution was going through ratification. And I'm going to talk about originalism tomorrow. But this is where we have our understanding of the powers of the central authority. Everything else, everything else was left to the states. And we know that because this is exactly how the proponents of the document sold it to the states during ratification. And again, I'll talk about originalism tomorrow, but if it wasn't that, the Constitution never would have been ratified. So much of the debate we have and much of the conversation we have politically today is only made possible because most people don't really understand federalism. And federalism is the core of the American political system. But again, where did that come from? Well, it came from this idea of, say, the Dominion Theory. And then, of course, the powers of the Parliament vis-à-vis the colonial legislatures. And so there are some pretty important legal scholars, historians, more importantly, legal historians, who have really articulated this better than anyone else. And one of those is Jack Green. He's still alive, born in 1931, so he's, he's getting up there in age. Um, and he's written a number of great books on this. But another important scholar in this particular process just passed away uh, in April. And uh, Aaron Coleman wrote a really good piece at Law and Liberty about this. So I want to focus on that today. And again, people like it when I go through books that people should read or people should pick up, and uh, this is no different. This particular piece is going to get into that. So it's fun to do politics. It's fun to talk about current events, and I'll do some of that this week. But I also want to go back again to the core of this. When I when I first started thinking about podcasting and doing these things, I wanted to do something that brought in history and historical perspective on things, and this is exactly what this is going to do. Now, Aaron Coleman is a is a very good historian. Um, I, I really like his work. Wrote a great book on the uh, on the anti-federalists, so to speak, um, and carrying that tradition forward in uh, in American history. And so you should go out there and look at that. Aaron N. Coleman is his name. But he writes this piece for Law and Liberty, and he says John Philip Reed, who I'm talking about today, in terms of this great uh, constitutional scholar, prolific scholar of early American constitutional legal history, passed away on April six, 2022, at 91. Spending his entire career at NYU Law, Reed established himself as one of the most erudite and penetrating minds in the field of American constitutional and legal history. After publishing a judicial biography on Charles Doe in 1967 and an important work on the 18th century Cherokee legal system a few years later, Reed turned his energies to the American Revolution. Let me stop there for a second. This term American Revolution, the founders used it, people used it, I think we need to think of a different term for this, though. Revolution doesn't really define what was happening between 1765 and 1783. And I think you really have to start looking at 1765 as the time when the American colonists began rethinking their relationship with the center. I mean, you had... uh, And you could even say 1764 with the Sugar Act. But you certainly had people rethinking how... Uh, they conceptualized the powers of the parliament vis-a-vis the powers of the colonial legislatures. And they didn't like it. They didn't like what they were seeing. They didn't. So people often say, well, it's about you know, representation. Well, more than anything else, it was about the fact that they already had colonial legislatures that could handle the domestic concerns of the states or the colonies, which, again, eventually states. And they didn't need a, a government in, in uh, Great Britain telling them what they could do. I mean, these are the people that were closest to them. They had representation in their own colonial legislatures. They didn't need some type of virtual representation and another layer of centralized power in uh, in London. They just didn't need it. And, of course, when you think about the king and the fact that the colonies were the king's domain, so to speak, and the king had complete authority over the colonies, at least according to the colonists. And this is not just in British North America, but other colonies as well. And that's where Jack Green's work is really important because he brings out the the other peripheral areas of the British Empire and how they were responding to this issue of the center and what the parliament could do and what the king could do and what the colonial legislatures could do. So this idea of revolution, though, let me get back to that for a second there wasn't a radical transformation of the entire system. In fact, as I just mentioned, the concept of federalism is really born out of this relationship between the crown and the colonies. And so when you think about the central authority under the Articles of Confederation, essentially what you have, yes, you toppled a king, and you did not have a king under the Articles. You did you had a unicameral legislature. But you did have colonial, or now state, governors. right? And when you think about what the... What these states were doing, some wrote new constitutions, some did not. Some just simply uh, reaffirmed their colonial charters. And they already had these governments in place. There wasn't a radical transformation, even in the colonies, then states of government. There wasn't a radical transformation of society. Now, in some cases, there would be founders, of course, who would think that they had gone too far in the, in the realm of democracy. And so this is where the Constitution comes into play. But we didn't have a French revolutionary style uh, transformation of American society in 1776 or 1777 or 1783. It just didn't happen. So when we think about the radical nature of the American Constitution and not having a king, that's what people will will point to. Well, it's radical because we didn't have a king. This is true, but we had governors in the states which had executive power like a king would have. We just didn't have a central authority uh, that had a king because it was unnecessary, it was thought. You had uh, a, an executive in terms of the Congress, someone, uh, the, the president of the Congress, someone that could execute the laws of Congress, but it wasn't a whole separate branch. It wasn't a presidency, it was a president of the Congress. And people mistake that all the time. It's something I get into with my American President's class at uh, McClanahan Academy. By the way, I mean, you want to pick up any McClanahan Academy classes. These podcasts serve as kind of a corollary to those things. And the only reason this podcast is possible is because people buy McClanahan Academy Academy classes. So, I, I mean, I need to pitch that because that's how you keep this podcast free of charge. And, of course, also, uh, you know, if you want to make a, a donation at... at uh, at brianmcclanahan.com and those kind of things. That's how you keep it free of charge, right? So that's how I keep doing this all the time. But when you look at uh, that relationship and the transformative nature of the American War for Independence, it really wasn't a revolution. And I think we need to ensure that we call it what it is and not a revolution, so Coleman continues his work on the constitutional dimensions of the revolution changed both the progressive interpretation and which which viewed the conflict through the lens of socioeconomic conflict and the ideological school which connected the American arguments to the republican intellectual tradition. Both schools he believed failed to grasp the essence of the era's thinking. The American Revolution he concluded was concerned predominantly with the nature of the British constitution. By supplying the forgotten constitutional context of the modern historical debate Reed's scholarship left an indelible mark on our understanding of the Revolution. His passing offers a chance to remember his often unappreciated work. Coleman says Reed made his first case for the constitutional nature of the American Revolution in a series of lengthy law review articles and works comparing the conditions of the law in Ireland and Massachusetts and the concepts of representation and liberty at the time of the Revolution. His full-throated correction, however, came in his magnum opus, the four-volume Constitutional History of the American Revolution, which, by the way, you should pick up. Each volume concentrated on one aspect of, the, of English constitutionalism, the authority of rights, the authority to tax, the authority to legislate, and the authority of law. In 1995, he produced a surprisingly slim, single-volume, abridged edition. The collection remains, and probably will remain, the single most important constitutional an- analysis of the Revolution deserves a far wider readership than it has received and should be considered the equal of, and in some ways, a necessary correction to Bernard Balin's ideological origins of the American Revolution. So, let me stop there and talk about that. Balin, a lot of libertarians like Bernard Balin, because it gets into this idea of a soft interpretation of the Revolution. Now, Charles Beard would offer what was often called a hard interpretation of the American War for Independence. And that would be an economic look at it, right? So, And of course, there were others. You know, Forrest MacDonald. Uh, and when you get in the founding period, this is where people will focus on these things. And, and was, there's uh, J.G. Pocock and J.G.O. Pocock. There's a whole number of people that get into this particular debate on uh, what the what the American War for Independence means, where the... Where the impetus came from. Was it all, was it, was it the Enlightenment that was driving this? Was it hard circumstances like economic reasons that were driving it? What people like Reed and Green would say is that it was an understanding of constitutionalism that drove it, right? Not just singular issues. And this is where you can get into this idea in, in American history too. We can take issues like a tariff or slavery. Or, take your pick, right? Internal improvements or banking. All of those at their core are constitutional questions. What is the power of the center? This is where we get in In, in modern era. You have you know, gun rights or abortion. Take your pick. Whatever it is. What is the power of the center? And what is the power of the periphery? This is what it really comes down to. It's all about power. COVID. I mean, you've got Fauci standing up and admitting now that this is all about Who can tell you what to do? Is it the states or the center? You see, this is the point. It's always about power. And I think that Reed and Green and others show this very well. You can look at all these individual issues, but at the core, it's always about what the center can and cannot do. It's about power and control. And if we don't understand that, we're going to always be lost and focused on these singular little things. This is why... Again, the Calhoun class that I just released at McClanahan Academy, if you got in on the deal, you got a good deal because you'll never see it for that price again. But you still want to pick up the class even if you didn't get a good deal on it because it's so important to understand Calhoun and what he's saying. In 1837, in his positive good speech, which I don't cover in that class, but I do cover in my Southern Cultural and Intellectual History series. In that 1837 speech, Calhoun says, Look! You're saying that the Congress cannot legislate for slavery. I'm saying they can. They can abolish slavery tomorrow. They can abolish it today. And because they can do that, why can they do that? I mean, people are standing up and saying, we don't have any power to do this. Did you not pass an unconstitutional central banking system? Did you not pass an unconstitutional protective tariff? Have you not passed unconstitutional federally funded internal improvements? Have you not done these things? Then why is it that you're saying you can't do this? Because you can. And when he gets into that, if he says, look, if slavery really is a moral evil, then it needs to be abolished right now. There's no waiting around. And Congress has the power to do it. But yet nobody wants to. right? That was his whole point. Nobody wants to. He was just simply saying in, in that speech something that he wasn't talking about slavery in the abstraction, For first of all. I mean, he's saying if slavery is an abstract evil. It needs to go away now. It needs to be eliminated. And Congress has the power to do it. That's Calhoun saying this. Why? Because they've already passed unconstitutional legislation. You see, the point of all this is about power. If Congress is going to violate its power, then all these issues are simply about that core position. And the the people out of power are always going to rely on a constitutional argument to defend themselves. The people in power won't care about it. So all this comes down to, all these singular issues come down to is power. It's not about ideology, it's not about enlightened theory, no. It's about power, more than anything else. Once you understand that about American government, and about the American war for independence, and about American history, it all falls into place. Even to this day, it's about power. Why does the left advocate certain things? Because they want power. Why does the right advocate certain things? Because they want power. It's about power. Now, you could say in some cases about, you know, we want the ability of individuals to make these choices or states to make these choices. We don't want somebody. We want to cut power. But still, it's about power. Who has it and who doesn't? Coleman says, perhaps the most crucial element of Reed's work was his disentanglement of the constitutional from the ideological. Much of what the intellectual school label Republicanism, he argued, came straight out of the literature of the common law, from the writings of Sir Edward Cook, uh, Sir Matthew Hale, and even Sir William Blackstone. The common law mind, with its emphasis on the assumptions, customs, traditions, and values of the British Constitution, shaped the revolutionary debate and centered it on constitutional anxieties. Another way to say that is about power. What is the power of the center? And what is the nature of... The relationship of the center to the the, the people of the British Empire, to the colonies, it's about power. What kind of power does the central authority have? Reed's emphasis on the constitutional dimensions of the debate stood in stark contrast with the ideological school's construction of a comprehensive system of thought in which constitutionalism was one contributing element of the contemporary worldview. Essentially, the ideological school made constitutionalism a supplemental or a supplement to the larger ideological argument rather than the primary motivator. This is not to say that Reed dismissed the findings of the intellectual school. Indeed, he often praised their work, but he saw it as his goal to correct, sharpen, and refocus those arguments to bring actual constitutionalism back into the story. So again, a much more fundamental and structural, and you could say hard interpretation of the war. This is about legality and power. All these other things, of course, can factor into it. Republicanism... Uh, rights, all these type of things, but in, in the abstract. But more importantly, it's about the structure and the relationship. That's what it comes down to. Reed believed that the downplaying of constitutionalism resulted from the intellectual school's anachronistic importation of 19th and 20th century notions of constitutionalism into 18th century discourse. One of Reed's most pre- uh, persistent criticism centered on historians' presumption that law and constitution are the commands of the sovereign. Far too often, historians assume that what Parliament stated was the law, thereby concluding that the only way to understand the negative American response to measures such as the Stamp Act and the Coercive Acts must be to look beyond the law to political ideology. In the 18th century ever, constitutional, legal, and political lacked the precision they now carry. In that era, constitutional still retained its older definition rooted in custom to proceed in conformity to law, in conformity to custom, and in conformity to the current constitutional conventions. At the same time, legality meant acting within the confines of the customary constitution, while the political was a matter of choice rather than precedent, designed for immediacy rather than durability. Hence, the British Constitution of the 18th century remained one in which custom traditions and values restrained power. So here, Coleman gets to to the proper focus. It's on power. You see... It wasn't just the ideology behind this. Well, the Stamp Act, the Coercive Acts. No, no, no. It simply comes down to power. Are you conforming to the structure of the British Constitution, or are you not? This is about power. Quote, The adherence to the 17th century British Constitution of custom illuminates why Americans denied all of Parliament's attempts to tax the colonies internally. This is what he said, right? It comes down to that. It's about power and about tradition and custom. And this is what originalism gets down to. Okay, what's the, what's the tradition and custom in the document as it's written, right? And then that's what we have to rely on. Because we have a written document, this is what it means. You cannot wiggle around that. You have to amend it to change it. A great example of Reed's point was the American indictment of Parliament wielding arbitrary power to tax the colonies directly. Because historians incorrectly assume that the 18th century Parliament commanded the law, the only way that they can make sense of this claim is to turn the canons of Whig ideology, which held all power as suspect. According to this reading, Americans advance a political claim when charging Parliament with arbitrary actions. They consider parliamentary taxation, for example, as arbitrary because it exercised ever dangerous power. Resolve the immediate issue of paying for troops on the frontier. The constitutional argument, however, becomes evident when we understand that the colonies primarily understood the law as governed by custom and convention. Under the authority of custom, Parliament lacked the constitutional power to tax the colonies. By operating outside of custom, they acted unconstitutionally and arbitrarily. Hence, the claim of arbitrary power was not a political response born out of ideology, but a constitutional one rooted in notions of custom and authority. Exactly right. And it was unconstitutional. It was tradition, and we had this British structure. But it's about power, and the power to do it doesn't come from some type of, uh, again, ideological resistance, but traditional and customary and constitutional in, re- in relation to power. Again, important. By distinguishing the constitutional from the ideological, Reed showed how the American Revolution represented the clash of the two constitutions. The American understanding of the British Constitution looked to the past, Theirs was the Constitution in which custom was law's evidence, one of the chief sources of authority, and as authority was, in fact, law. Custom established a rule of law that restrained power. The American understanding of the British Constitution was the Constitution of the common law defended by the likes of Edward Cook, John Pyme, and John Hamden. It explains why the American argument made consistent appeals to the 17th century. These appeals were not just the use of history to prove a point, but pointed to the customary authority of the British Constitution. To put it another way, the adherence to the 17th century British Constitution of Custom illuminates why Americans denied all of Parliament's attempts to tax the colonies internally. Since Parliament had never interfered with the colonies' internal affairs, they lacked the customary authority to do so. Since what was customary was constitutional, this meant Parliament lacked the constitutional authority to enact direct taxation. Again, important. It wasn't just some type of economic argument or some type of ideological argument coming down to natural rights or something else. No, no, no. This was how the two sides reconciled power. Right? And what you see here, and of course what Coleman doesn't doesn't point out, is that when we talk about originalism, it's why I wanted to start this week with this piece, and I'll bridge into originalism tomorrow. When we talk about that, what we're simply doing is going back to the founding... They were were originalists. This is all an originalist argument. Wait a second here. This is the original Constitution. We get 17th century here. You are deviating from the original Constitution, this is what you're doing, right? So when we talk about originalism, the American colonists were in many ways, those who were opposing British, unconstitutional British power were originalists. This is what they were. As Reed made clear throughout his four-volume work, the winds of constitutional change were blowing in 18th century England. While the Americans clung to the idea of custom as constitutional, in England a growing state of con- contrary Uh, I'm sorry, created a a state of polarity in their constitutional theory. The constitutional change that resulted from the glorious revolution of 1688 in which Parliament consumed all sovereign power of command was still in its early stages in the mid-18th century. The customary constitution remained but was crumbling under the weight of parliamentary sovereignty. It was not until the 1766 Declaratory Act which affirmed that Parliament could could bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever the logic of parliamentary supremacy, I'm sorry, sovereignty, receive its definitive statement? Cons- this Constitution of Sovereign Command represents the Second Constitution. Unlike the colonies that looked to the past, the Second Constitution looked to the future of modern constitutionalism, in which parliamentary power was the rule of law. These two competing notions, bursting forth in the mid-18th, proved so incompatible that they resulted in the American Revolution. Again, if, if you move this forward into the United States, what do we have? Well, We have those that would say we have the original Constitution, and of course as amended, but the original Constitution and the original understanding of powers from states vis-a-vis the federal government or the general government. This is what we have. And then you have those that look to a different period of time, another Constitution, an unwritten American Constitution that's amenable and changeable as the whim of courts decide to do it. Right? So we have two different constitutions, just like here in Britain, you had two different constitutions. And you could say maybe there's an original constitution, and then there's a constitution that comes out after the war, which has been interpreted by the courts to mean something it's not. All of these things, you could say, work into this stuff. Reed's critiques of the anachronistic and ideological readings of the revolution and his reorienting of the revolution to its constitutional foundations are of critical importance. His admonition that we should pay more attention to Anglo-American constitutional history and theories than to the numerous strains of pre-modern and modern political thought is one that all scholars of the revolution should heed. The intellectual strains that most studies on the revolution examine may have adherence in the colonies, but the main arguments advanced during the imperial crisis were ones originating in the English constitutional system. What this should tell us is that the system will not work unless it runs according to those English traditions. Importing Marxism, continental theory, religious ideologies, or critical theories to reinterpret the Constitution or the American political tradition is doomed to failure. Such theories will irrevocably change, if they have not already done so, the American constitutional experience. This is what what Coleman is getting back to, right? So, as you import these other things and they work on the understanding of what was happening in the 18th century, in the 17th century, you're changing... The way we think about American constitutionalism. And you're changing the way we think about the United States. You're essentially destroying what the United States was and is a federal republic. So Coleman brings it back to that, but if you don't if you can't get the trend here. What the right, what the constitutional, those that say we're originalists or those that rely on original understanding of the Constitution, those that are nullifiers, you know, secessions, whatever it is, those that believe in extreme decentralization, what you're talking about, is not really extreme at all. It's just the original structure of America. Those that, if you read Calhoun, that's exactly what he's saying. So this is all we're looking at here. and But what's happened is the progressives and the left, the nationalists, over time have whittled that away to create an entirely new constitution. In short, John Philip Reed's work should force us to come to terms with a revolution designed to preserve a constitutional tradition, not create a new one, which is a great line to end this piece. All right, so I really like this piece by Aaron Coleman. Again, you should go out and get his books. They're great. His book on uh, the anti-Federalist tradition, it's fantastic. Go out and read that. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.